Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and welcome. This is Season 2, Episode 40 of Drive-by Cinema. With me is my fugy <laughs> assistant, Paul. Hi everybody, welcome to this <laughs> this uh, this episode of this podcast. I am Rick. And what is this podcast, Richard? Drive-by cinema. It's a cinema where we watch movies so you don't have to, because we'll tell you all about them and what to think about them as well. It's really, it's a managed leisure experience based around films. I'm all for managed leisure experiences. I just love, I just love them. Tempin Bowling, what, why? Why do we have the pub and not have Tempin Bowling? Why has one not superseded the other? We do have Tempin Bowling. But we, don't, we don't have as many as we have pubs though, do we? No. Although the two are combining, aren't they now? In There's a Venn diagram of those things. Is that? Oh, can I just stop you, by the way? What's your favourite managed experience, leisure experience there? Well, I did an escape room recently. I'd never done one of those before. Wow. Or maybe come to that later. Paul, yeah. uh, can I just stop you? Is wow. that what you intend to wear for the podcast recording? What? Is that? Do you consider that suitable attire for recording podcasts in? What, you mean a t-shirt in my mum breasts? It's not really... I mean, you're not really got dressed up. No, you haven't got a collared shirt, do you? I don't have a whisker on. No, like somebody has. Is it whisker? Exactly. Richard's wearing a whisker and and a granddad shirt, as you used to call them. It's it's not. It's no. It's it's, no, it's not a granddad collar. shirt. It's a button-down Oxford. Do you remember granddad shirts? They had like the upright collar. Yes. What? Yeah. What was all that about? They were quite well, cool, they weren't a, they? They have a tag at the back, don't they? And you stick a thing through to attach a collar that had been starched, presumably. Oh, but you never actually wore the collar. You just wore the upright bit to it. As, as, as an 80s kid, that's all I did, you know. Wow, I was wearing them wrong. No, Richard, you look very, very dapper. What's all this in aid of? It's episode 40, Paul. It's, it is. You know, I love it. Yeah, it's, it's a very special number. It's like a really pure number, but not a palindrome. I mean, if, if you think people would be okay with you just lounging around in a t-shirt to record, then that's fine. Well, you don't want to see my lower half, do you, then? I, I hope you don't got shorts on, Paul. I've got tennis shorts on. Tennis shorts? Yeah. Mm. Listen. My, hey, 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 hey. My kick serve is really coming in. I don't know what that is. It sounds exciting. A kick serve is, is a serve to... done with topspin. Oh. I thought I was going to say, I thought you're supposed to use a bat for tennis, aren't you? <laughs> Well, no, a kick serve is done with topspin. Now, you might think, you know, what's the revolution you get on a topspin on a ball? Well, on the serve, not that much, but on a, on a typical forehand that's nicely placed for someone like Nadal or Federer, they get 6,000 RPM on that ball. Get out of here. I'm not joking, 6,000 RPM. Now, Paul, you've also been cycling as well, haven't you? Uh, under duress, my car engine exploded. Have I told you about this? You have told me that your car engine exploded. Yeah, so... Uh, Fingers crossed. So in the meantime, yes, I've been on my bike. Long COVID biking. It is helping with my recovery, but at the same time, it can be quite exhausting. Have you seen any of the YouTube videos by the famous YouTuber Cycling Mikey? Is he the one that shouts at London cabbies? Yeah, well, he shouts at everybody, but he does also shout at London cabbies. Yeah. Is he the white gentleman or the black gentleman? He's a white gentleman. He's actually Dutch. The black gentleman is much more fun. He kind of dresses up like a Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> like goes full combat mode with his cabbies, yeah. Yeah, he's got his huge like foghorn and then a microphone says you have violated the laws of the road. 
Uh, but yeah, I've, I've seen the white guy too. But I, I tend to find he can be quite provocative in, in terms of intentionally going, you know, going to those strange kind of junctions in, in back streets of London where there's kind of like a bollard and a turn off for the cars and the pedestrian area. No, it's, it, it's it's a famous one. I've just sent you a link to one of his many YouTube videos. It's called Gandalf Corner. It's where there's a turning into a park and there is a bollard. There's a bollard and there's a keep left sign and cars quite routinely, it would seem. Ignore that. Uh, they, they go the opposite side on the opposite carriageway of the road and uh, try to turn right. He's, I mean, he's done hundreds here. This is his famous, his favourite haunt, effectively. I'm interested to hear what you think about it. I, I, I don't know what to think. I mean, he's... I mean, he's right, and it's dangerous, and they shouldn't do it. But he is quite provocative. He's very uh, provocative. He spends a lot, a lot of time standing at that junction and then jumping out in front of the cars. I'm going down the main road here. Like, uh, it's there are some bollarded sections where there's a central reservation with bollards, and uh, some of the old granites coming past me and then there's some micros, like. I get the feeling, you know, sometimes they come really close to it. I.e., they haven't really worked out my speed, their relative speed, and where the bollard is. Like, you just hold back a bit or go a bit faster. You don't have to pass me as I'm passing the bollard and the, the thinned-out section of the road. There's only maybe eight foot there at that point you know, on, yeah. on either section. Yeah. It, even if they're scraping the bollard, they're going to be, like, just two feet away from it, which is just too close for comfort, to be honest with you. Uh, and the feeling I get is that they're choosing me over the bollard. Like, I, I get this a lot with older drivers. It's like, oh, gosh, uh, I don't want to slow down now. Oh, I'm going to crash my car. I'll, I'll avoid the bollard, you know. And uh, it's, it just... Uh, uh, when he's doing that bit at Gandalf Corner, he's not on his bike. No, actually. he's not. He might, yeah. he might be with his bike, but he's he's, he's, he's just lecturing people as a pedestrian. Yeah. yeah, I actually think he's on firm ground on that bit because clearly they are they're yeah. breaking the law on on the wrong side of the road. And the, uh, there are other videos of his because you know he takes videos all the time when he's cycling, where I think he's quite aggressive and he's quite aggravational in his approach. I mean he. I'm not saying he's in the wrong. I mean, he's frequently... No, he's just he's like, not in the wrong at all, no. Just no. just like you're saying, you know, he's frequently complaining about not being given enough room and drivers passing him too closely. But he also will then, like, sometimes I've seen him follow, you know, a vehicle to where it's parked up so he can take the number plate down and then the driver will be there or getting out or something and he'll have a an argument with them, a blazing row. And it's... It's a kind of vigilantism that, you know, we talked a bit about this with the Batman mm. movie, didn't we? But he's not de-escalating anything, is he? That's I think that's where the problem might lie. Now, he, he would claim, and he, he tells his story sometimes, but he, he lost his father to a road traffic accident of some kind. I think a I drunk see. driver, mm. actually. And he's very firm about, you know, as a cyclist, he's not really risking anybody else's safety, only his own. No, well... I'm not sure that's totally true. There was there. a cyclist who was in prison, wasn't he, for killing a pedestrian? And it was. Uh, it's, in, it's not just uh, two, that, is it? If you cycle, if you cycle without care and attention, and you wind up under the wheels of a vehicle, then the person that's killed you or emotional you, damage, yeah, huge amounts of emotional damage. Yeah, I mean, they're going to suffer from that, aren't they? In, in many potential ways, so. It's not a victimless crime to throw yourself around uh, as a you know 
recklessly as some cyclists seem to do. As, as some students do. Uh, I mean, the drunken <laughs> cycle home uh, isn't painful painful at all, is it? You know, because you, I mean, you <laughs> eight pints, you tank. Yeah, you don't get any leg burn at all. You know, winds don't concern you. It could be minus twenty five out there, icy biting winds from the your Urals, and you don't care. You know, so uh, there is that. There's this thing I think where lots of people do cycle drunk, which isn't responsible. However, I, I would say if you go really slow, it's okay. Uh, but people just don't. They 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 clip along at a fair old pace when they're drunk, don't they? Uh, and uh, over a privet hedge sometimes. Yeah. Now, in your circumstance, you know, when you're coming up to those bollards, I think what he and other cyclists would advise you to do is take up a position in the middle of the road. Yeah. And yeah. You're entitled to do that. Looking, you know, given the age demographic of the people living around me, I was I was just walking to Sainsbury's, I think, the other day, and uh, there was an old guy, you know, just really hunched over his wheel, doing the classic 17 miles an hour down the road. So you know, and there's no need, it's a 30. So you know mm. that he can't drive because he's going too slow. Yeah. Uh, and then there's an old guy with a Zimmer frame starting to cross the road in front of him. <laughs> and it was this awful situation where neither of them were young enough to stop kind of thing. <laughs> and it was like, gosh. So given where I live and the age of the people around me, I'm not going to take him up on his <laughs> insistence that I should confidently occupy my right to my right to my side of the road. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Poor Speaking. Boris Becker, by the way, back on back on tennis. Oh, Yes. In jail for tax just fraud. some white-collar crime, honestly. Germans are up in arms. Like, why is he in jail? He didn't murder anybody. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he's in the news. And I was I was on the ball machine down at tennis today. And some very well-to-do lady. She lives in the castle opposite. There's like a big crenellated sort of semi-Hollywood-style <laughs> gothic castle down. It's very well-heeled down by the tennis club. And she came out. Uh, and she's like, oh, I've been watching you. You're really good, kind of thing. I don't know if she's about to start flirting. She had a small dog with her. Uh, maybe that's an indication. Uh, but I was safely ensconced in my blue painted court uh, behind behind high wire, so I didn't feel that she was going to jump on me at any point. She was like, "Oh, poor Boris Becker." I said, "Yeah, poor Boris Becker." I haven't got a penny to his name now. She said, "Yeah, but you're not as good as him, are you?" <laughs> it's like I don't know what all the backhanded <laughs> compliments were headed, you know, but they certainly came out as you're just not as good as Boris Becker. And, <laughs> Like, I don't know why she had to come and tell me that. I, mean, I know I'm not as good as Boris Becker. She said, you'll never win a championship at 17 years old. It's like, <laughs> what? You just said hello. You're playing really well. And then it just dissolved into her giving me really backhanded insults, you know. So I guess it made her day. Amazing. Cyclists, tennis players. The subject of public odium. Anyway, Richard, sorry. Speaking I'm, I'm, of vigilantism as well, I know in one of the previous episodes... I talked uh, very briefly about there being... I mean, we are talking about Batman. I talked about real superheroes, mm-hmm. including Phoenix Jones, I think. Ah, yes. Well, I found that there is... I, th- I found this... Well, he's from Seattle or somewhere, isn't he? Oh, sorry. But I found there is a... Um, a real kick-ass. I found there is a podcast all about Phoenix Jones. Oh no, it's a podcast for everything, isn't it? There is a podcast for everything. So I'll put a link in our show notes. I think. Please do, please do. Uh, Just one thing to say. Oh, sorry, Richard. Cool. I was going to say it's called. If you don't want to look at the link, there we go. It's called the Superhero Complex. Wow. 
But anyway, have, have a listen to the superhero complex. So, so one correction or one ambition or one addendum to, to add before we head into, bravely head into this week's movie. You know, Richard is kind of like a superhero in terms of his powers of observation. I don't know if you've noticed regular listeners to our podcast, but Richard is very much focused and very keen on the details. Uh, and, and very, and very, uh, very keen eyed. As to what happens in movies. So when I made for some reason, are you? So when I made a visual comparison and a style comparison between ET and the Adam Project, uh, Richard objected to this for detailed reasons. He said, "You know, ET wasn't like the Adam Project, the beginning." See, I think he noticed some similarities, like heading off into scrub with a torchlight to find an alien, alien. And bringing it back to a rather plush suburban house. But Richard said, no, no, no. Uh, in E.T., they live in a pokey little suburban thing. Uh, it's not really a big ranch-style suburban villa. Uh, whereas it, in the Adam Project, the house is in the middle of the woods. A bit like the sex... Is it sex... What's that? Sex education? Julian Anderson lives in there. Yeah. Yes. And yes. As a reference point. Though, it? So yeah. as a reference point, yeah. Adam Project, a bit better than Julian Anderson's house. E.T., I've gone back by chance to watch it and... Not as good as generally Anderson's house in sex education, but getting there, Richard. And also not on a suburban drive, at the top of Mulholland Drive, overlooking the lights of Hollywood. Yeah. Okay. I, so It's possible I haven't really seen E.T. very much, because I don't well, like it. Well, Richard, let, let's go back to another movie, Betty Blue. And I said there was, a, there was a, no, I think there was a reference to Betty Blue in The Hangover, where Alan, the crazy guy with the beard, inhabits a teepee with a small blonde child. Yeah. Teepee. Yeah. Yeah. And you wouldn't say, oh, they're dissimilar because Alan has a beard and Betty doesn't, would you? And I think at this point, you know, the house is being different. You're almost on an Alan has a beard kind of objection, aren't you? I, I, Uncharitable I objections. Okay. I, I'm completely willing to take back my comments about oh, God, you, you You seem to know it well. It's one of your favourites, clearly. You're all about. <laughs> He's going to twist the knife. Let's find out if we agree about this week's film, Paul, after the music. Richard, we're back again after the music. What are we watching this week? We're watching Children of Men. 2006, by director Alfonso Cuaron. 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 <laughs> I don't know how to say that either. Uh, now, he um, also did one of the Harry Potter movies, didn't he? The Prisoner of Azkaban. No way! I really don't like The Prisoner oh. of Azkaban. Well, okay. Now, you're, now, the interesting thing about this film, the reason why we're watching this film in particular, is because... Because I... You're reading the book. I am. It's in front of me right and now. It's by P.D. James. P.D. James. Uh, l- erstwhile crime thriller writer, you know, a really prolific writer. Like, at the back of this book, this is an old-fashioned kind of Penguin book with adverts by the same author kind of thing. Yeah, just like so many titles by by her. Uh, and she just used to belt them out like Barbara Cartland belted out uh, romances. But, you know, a prolific but, you know, fairly respected kind of potboiler kind of crime writer. Here in Children of Men, she turns her hand to something really rather different. Penguin, but you say, that's interesting, because you wouldn't think, mm. would you, that a penguin could read a book. 
Particularly, they can't really turn the pages, can they, with the flippers? There are two kinds of birds. Right. Ones that learn to fly, evolu- ev- evolutionary speaking. Yeah, ones that learn to fly. Ones that learn to fly. Most birds. And ones that had big, horny feet that they could fight with. Penguins are the second kind, apparently. Like rheas and emus and ostriches. Yeah, so the, the bones are so heavy in those feet, those fighting feet, that therefore, therefore it's pointless for their wings to evolve. Cassowaries. Penguins apparently are the same. Although, I, I, I don't know where their big bony feet went to. Cute. Aren't they, penguins? Cute little things, yeah. Right, okay, so apparently it's builds dystopian action thriller. Uh, and I guess it is. Uh, okay, yeah. so you've read P.D. James's book. On recommendation. By whom? Oh, that's interesting. By a pal in Oxford. Uh, uh, and, you know. Uh, but uh, So I went down to see it whilst, whilst it was bubbling up. She said, oh, by the way, you've got to read this, Children of Men. It's just a great little tour guide of Oxford. And really good book for the times. Makes you think about things, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and it's all true, you know. It's like when you've been around Oxford for two or three days, and then you read this book, it just echoes so many iconic locations in Oxford, uh, particularly the meadows and that kind of stuff. Uh, And uh, none of that is in the film. I was going to say, (laughs) you've read the book, unlike Alfonso Cuaron, who didn't read the book. (laughs) He didn't, no. Strangely. (laughs) He said, I'll get somebody else, one of the other directors, to read that. And then he read their synopsis or something like that. So what we've got like here that. is a film which is an interpretation of the basic concept of what's in the book. <laughs> but no more than that. Well, really. this movie is like the movie that I would make of a movie having watched it. Like, I haven't watched it very carefully. <laughs> and I've only got half the idea. And I'm relying on Richard to <laughs> correct me so that I can... I think he's he's done a me on this one, to be honest with you. Like it's very, very smudgy. Like it's very hand wavy. As anything approaching the content of the novel, it it it's I would say there's only really about ten percent of DNA shared between Interesting. The I'm fascinated to hear about the differences. If for no other reason than, right? So PD James, she's real she's basically like Vicar's daughter material, isn't she? She's She's like, she's a Jilly Cooper for people interested in crime. Uh, she's quite religious, I think. She's into the Anglican church. Yes. She yes. served as a Tory peer. She was, she did, did she? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think you can, you can imagine, what, I think, what kind of books m- most of the stuff must be. I've not, not really read it. Well, beloved by Daily Express readers from 20, 25 years ago. Well, I think the fact that she's a Tory peer makes... A lot of the themes of the film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Immigration. Was she laying out a blueprint? But again, if it's not in the book, then all of this observation about what I saw in the film may be completely irrelevant. Is it faux condemnations actually hoping for all this to happen? Kind of? Is it wishful thinking? Is it dystopian? Does she view it as a utopia? That's <laughs> Potentially. Although she didn't... Potentially. She didn't, wasn't really involved in the film. And, you know, the story is only loosely connected in some ways. She did say that she was pleased with the film outcome. She's dead now, by the way. She's died between 2006 when it was released and and today. 
I think she died in 2018. I can't yeah. remember what it was. Anyway. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I was interested in one because it's quite a departure from her, yes. let's say, anti-intellectual crime novels. Okay. It's an attempt by her to, in the novel at least, to throw up some fairly big ideas. You know, uh, She's not a science fiction writer. And in the novel, she kind of... What is great about this dystopian future is that everything's gone backwards and there's been no, there's been no technological advance to the extent they're still driving rovers and using home, you know, sort of landline telephones kind of thing. Uh, and, uh, yeah. So there we go. Uh, in the film, of course, there are some technological advances, like, uh, when it- oh, they have some, they've got some lovely flat screens. They've got the, yeah. When his protagonist goes to see his brother, I think, who's well up in the art department or the or the Department of Culture and Arts, his his brother or his friend's adolescent son is playing on some sort of weird... Yeah, he's typing on an air keyboard with little things on his fingers. Air yeah. keyboard kind of thing, yeah. So there's a big departure there. And, and, and in her novel, it's a very dilapidated future. Of course, a future where there, there, there is no potential. We'll get to this in a second. There's no, there's no offspring. There's no progeny for the entire human race. Uh, so, you know, like in the novel, like to drive a hundred miles, they have to, you know, try and rob some petrol and get it in a jerry can. It's like, 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 it's Mad Max future then. Yeah. Pretty much as, as it is going to be very shortly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but I don't think you really get that in. The movie is quite a different feel in the movie. It's so. quite prophetic, though. There's a few things. I think as we go through this, you're going to have to flag up the bits that are completely within the novel and the bits that are completely not in the novel. I, I think, well, I'll try to, but it might be easy just to leave it till the end because it's really confusing to compare Right, to. so let's let's talk about what happens. Let's talk about what happens here. So it's the year in the, in the film. It's the year 2027. Not so far away, is it? And the news that we see on the TV screens and stuff is that... Okay, can um, I interrupt now? In the novel, what year is it? 2021. Oh, wow. Okay, so it's already happened. Yeah. Okay. In the film, the news that's happening at the start is that the youngest person in the world has been stabbed. The youngest person in the world is 18, born in 2009. And he's the youngest person in the world, as we learn, because people can't have children anymore. Yeah. Now, in the movie, it's definitely female fertility that's that's uh, at stake here. In the novel, it's not certain if it's female fertility or male potency, potency that's the issue here. Yeah. Okay. It's not sexist, male potency, <laughs> but it is male potency. Donate any male, any adult male has to donate their sperm in what has become a very, very militaristic and junteresque Great Britain. It's also militaristic and junteresque in the film as well, isn't it? But yes. you're right. In the film, they imply that it might be related to the females. Oh, it's, it could still be the men. But there is this weird thing where there's a midwife in the film. She describes how one day there just started to be um, uh, miscarriages. That is from the novel. That is from the novel. That's one thing that actually is almost verbatim from the novel. But additionally... not it's Possibly one of the most boring parts of the novel, and definitely the most boring dialogue in the movie. <laughs> like... Oh yeah, I was coming in, doing you know, I was checking off the charts in the ward, and few and few babies were popping out on Sea Ward. Yeah, oh gosh, yeah, terrible. You know, it's like, what on earth is this doing in this action movie? Kind but of the, thing? the weird thing is, the the midwife she mentions miscarriages, but also it's clear that pregnancy stopped happening. So it must yes. be, it, 
So whatever it is, is affecting not only the birth, but also conception. Uh, so, so you think therefore a female problem? Uh, sort of implies something with the womb or something, doesn't it? I don't know. It's, yes. It's, it, the detail, though, is not really the issue. I don't think P.D. James was... Well, that's inherited from the, from the <laughs> novel just... because P.D. James, just no sci-fi detail. There's no futuristic detail. There's no real detail about... There is a bit of sketched-out detail about about the rebel groups and that kind of thing, but it's more like, oh, let's write a novel about Oxford <laughs> and let's put it in the future kind of thing where it's a really bad future. So everything in Oxford remains, you know, and all the mannerisms of the people. Uh, like the protagonist in the movie, he's a go-getting kind of good guy. He was, a, he was a rebel turned into a cynical office worker. Whereas in the novel, predictably, like a lot of the protagonists are Oxford Dons. <laughs> so the characters are really quite different. <laughs> Uh, and everything's very like, driving Morris Miners, you know. <laughs> now, you would think that in a future where you can no longer have babies, immigration would suddenly become a very desirable thing for a country, wouldn't you? If you want to get new blood into the country, getting immigration in, immigrants in would be great. But but not in P.D. James's future. In <laughs> P.D. James's future, not only are immigrants no longer a good thing, they're not welcome to work for us either. Might be your waiter, might be your friend, might be your caretaker. All these people are immigrants and not welcome. Please They're also report. rounding up all the immigrants and yes. deporting them as fast as they can. Now, this isn't a Tory peer's dream, okay? This is very different from the novel. In in the novel, we have some people called sojourners who are kind of like indentured slaves of presumably a different ethnographic background, i.e. not British, and they do the menial work while society is collapsing. Okay. You can hire them and like hire them and bring them over with some sort of uh, co- command economy sort of uh, barter trade ticket system, some sort of ration ticket where you can get these people to come and, you know, uh, sweep, sweep the leaves off your, off your garden and do menial jobs. Okay. That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is illegal immigrants are definitely not welcome. The third thing to say is it's not in the novel. Um, in the, sorry, not in the film. In the film, they've got this kind of ship where the hope of the future is. In the novel, the Isle of Man has become prison. a huge penitentiary a prison, yeah, yeah. prison where they essentially, as we find out in the novel, they just kill all the foreigners and all the criminals and all the foreigners who are criminals. Yeah. Uh, and given that you're being here without whatever kind of sojourner visa, Make sure a criminal means everybody just gets killed there. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is the quietus, which is the f- enforced suicide it's of the euthanasia, old people. Yeah, yeah. Euthanasia, where they're forced to jump off a pier and then clubbed on the back of the head. It's really quite violent in the novel, really well described, but very brutal, not science science fiction at all. Uh, those are the two major differences. In the film, I think. the quietus oh. is just a pill you take. It's like dignitas, isn't it? Ah. Dignitas at home, really. It's like it's like a delivery dignitas. And, of course, the big thing in the novel is that uh, Theo Farron in the novel... Okay, he's an Oxford Don. Uh, yeah. He's an Oxford Don, but his uh, his cousin is the warden of all England, i.e. Oliver Cromwell, okay. the modern Oliver Cromwell, and uh, runs a council of England yeah, with five advisors. Theo used to be on that, you see. So he's very well connected to the people high up, and that just doesn't play through into the film at all. So at the start of the film, we're following Theo, our hero, played by Clive Owen. He narrowly escapes a bombing in a coffee shop. 
It's quite a... By the fishes. The, the fishes, yeah. Which is a very religious name, isn't it? I think it comes from five fishes, does it, in the novel? It's never referred to that way in the film. Yeah, there's lots of meetings in churches in right. the novel. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also in the novel, of course, because there aren't children, people started, well, one, religion's gone like really weird. The Church of England isn't like the Church of England anymore. Sob, sob, boo-hoo. I think that's a theme <laughs> of P.D. James. And all these uh, corrupt uh, priests, particularly Catholic priests, are now like baptizing cats <laughs> instead. Yeah, yeah. And baptizing animatronic dolls because people are going crazy. Sorry, get children. Kind of yeah. And so, so there's all this idea of the dilapidated state of state religion. Isn't that a shame? And all that's very allegorical in in the novel, you know, the, the, the death, if you like, of traditional organised religion and the decay, as she sees it, of, of modern society. I think it's very, very explicitly interwoven there in the novel. But, but yeah. So the, in the film, the fishes are an activist kind of terrorist group and they're trying, yeah. they're agitating for what, for refugee rights, for immigrant rights, I think. Yes. Um, but being quite violent about it. Now, Clive, uh, sorry, Thea works for some government organisation? Not quite sure. There's a very Brazil feel to it this does. bit, isn't there? But he goes into his office and he seems pissed off about something. He goes to his boss. He has to work from home, which is very, very again, very forward thinking. There's also been a flu epidemic, hasn't there? In <laughs> Killed his That's child. That's right. His child died in a flu epidemic. Again, it's written in 2006, so they knew their stuff. But he goes to his boss and he asks if he can work from home. Not because he's just nearly blown up in a coffee shop. He says it's because he was so shook up about the youngest person in the world dying. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently he gets granted this work from home privilege and... Uh, then he gets kidnapped, doesn't he? No, not yet, I don't think. Does he? No, he drives oh. to go and see Jasper, played by Michael Caine, who lives off... In a secret place off the roadside where he has to move trees like Batman probably used to. Except he has to do it by hand. Do you want to hear what's different in the novel? Uh, well, I, I imagine there is no Michael Caine in the novel. There is. A, Michael Caine does really well here. He does a good, uh, a good Jasper job. is in the novel. Jasper commits suicide in the novel. Uh, and uh, Theo nicks his car to escape Oxford in the novel. Uh, and also Theo's child didn't die from flu. Theo's child was run over by <laughs> Theo. Uh, as he was backing out, he crushed his child's head, and his wife never forgave him for it. Three years before the action of the novel, his wife is separated and is now living with some sort of priggish uh, guy who works in marketing instead. So there we go. And she's taken the family cat. And of course, can't forgive him for crushing his, her child's head. However, he kind of blames her because she was supposed to be looking after it and left the door open when the child crawled out underneath the car wheels. God. So very different, really, the backstory. <laughs> But, you know, Hollywood, I mean, we can't really have Theo as a child murderer in a Hollywood movie, can we, so? Well, we also learn that illegal immigrants are shipped off to Bex Hill, for some reason, uh, where there's, Bex Hill. apparently there are compounds, there are walled kind of cities where they put all the immigrants waiting to be shipped off, I think. And, of course, the Human Project, I think it's called, is this group of... Scientists? Fabled group of scientists who apparently can help us all... Uh, and maybe make us all fertile again. Yeah. Now, after Theo has visited Jasper and they talk about some shit, I can't remember what. Do they smoke dope at this point? No, it's the second no, time. I, I think M M Jasper plays some 
Aphex Twin remix at him, <laughs> as if it's some kind of avant-garde music. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, PDJ's might yeah, have that sure. opinion. <laughs> like, like, whoa, oh, so strange, this modern music. And then Theo, I think he goes back to London. That's when he gets kidnapped. He gets bundled into the back of a van by these fishes activist guys. One of them's like a, a, a crusty with dreadlocks and stuff, a white dreadlock guy. They bundle him into the back of a van and they take him to go and see uh, Julianne Moore, who I think is called Julian, confusingly, in the movie. And I think that's his ex-wife or... His ex-wife. Uh, now, of course, in the novel, his ex-wife don't want to get back to, with him because he crushed their <laughs> baby's head. Julian, in the novel, is one of his ex-mature students who went to Oxford University for one of the night school classes in our run because there are no undergraduates. So you met her vaguely before. She was brilliant in class, a little idolatrous, a little inflammatory in her comments, but he remembered her and they meet in a museum and they, they leave secret messages in order to meet up. It's all very Oxfordian. And instead, we're, we're like in Bexhill, which is, I presume, is some part of London. It's on the coast, isn't it? Well, it's depicted on the coast later on. Oh, who knows? Now, Julianne Moore tells, tells him that the government bombed the shop because... As we know, the only idea going in conspiracy theories is false flag. False False flag is the only clever thing anyone has ever come up with. Uh, (laughs) Apparently, (laughs) false flags. False flags do exist, of course. Yeah, but they can't. It can't be the only. They can't be the only devious. You can't just use false (laughs) flags. Yeah, I mean, you can't. If you constantly use false flags, people are just really going to latch onto the idea. (laughs) Everything is a false flag. What's the point of false flagging anymore? Yes. Uh, so apparently the idea was the government were trying to pin this on the activists, I suppose. Anyway, Jules is an American and she, her parents yeah. were in New York. And I think we're given to understand oh, that New York was blown up by an yes. atomic bomb. Is that is that right? Wow. Is it in the novel or all these other yeah. places been bombed? No. Well, Britain has sort of stood straight and firm. Naturally. There's all that. And other countries, apparently, because, of course, she's so sympathetic to the cultures of other countries. I mean, they've just kind of said they've kind of given up kind of thing. And it's not that, you know, the world's gone to rack and ruin by war. It's just they've given up. They don't have British spunk, do they? They don't have British spunk. Although, albeit infertile. <laughs> so uh, we, we, we learn, I think, that New York is gone. And a bunch of other places... A bunch of other places have also disappeared. So Britain stands strong, apparently. That's what we learn, is it? Jules asks Theo to get transit papers for a girl for some purpose. Mm-hmm. And apparently... She wants to get to the human project because, well, we don't know yet, but she's got a special gift for everybody. Yeah. So I think Theo doesn't agree. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to, to be... He's not convinced either. the human project exists, is he? Whereas his mate Jasper... Yeah. Is fairly convinced. Jasper's a bit of a boomer, isn't he? Really, in his attitudes. So the the fishes drop him back in London. They kick yeah. him out of the van and they throw coins on the floor for his bus fare, which was a bit of a miss, wasn't it? And the transport <laughs> is a, is a little bit fucked up. They've got people in tuk tuks cycling around London. True. I like that. I like that addition. I don't think people are paying for bus fares with coins anymore, are they? It's all oystering, isn't it, in London? It's it all is, contactless. Yeah. So they, they, didn't, they got that wrong. Um, 
So he then goes to see his brother, is it? Is that his brother? Uh, it's his brother or a relation of some sort, yeah. And his brother's very important. He lives in this sort of gated community and they have to go down... To... His cousin, his cousin. So that's from the novel, yeah. They, they go through uh, Whitehall, down Guards Parade, and they cross over a bridge, mili- all militarised and guarded, to Battersea Power Station, which I think is another miss because... Although they keep trying, I don't think they've ever done anything with Battersea Power Station, have they? No, they haven't, no. Yeah. Uh, but nowadays, apparently, there's this region here, which is the Ark of Art. Apparently, again, Britain has decided what it's going to do is go all over the world and steal big works of art. <laughs> oh, oh, no history in that one. <laughs> and so we're we're storing all this art here in, in Battersea Power Station. Keeping it safe for you. Not stealing, keeping it safe. Including an inflatable dirigible pig, like the Pink Floyd uh, album uh, yeah. thing floating around. So that's yeah, quite. It could have been. It's what's quite cool. It's quite nice imagery, isn't it? Oh, the artist who does those really shiny puppy dogs. He's like the the one of the most expensive. Because I very rarely. Jeff Koons. That's it. Jeff Koons. Koons. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So his brother, I think, gives him some transit papers after a brief discussion. He does. Yeah. And he. Hooks up with Luke, that played by Stuart Allegia for, who tells him how to communicate with them. I think he sticks a notice to the notice board in a tube station, and then he uh, he meets another contact at the dogs. Again, seems like a bit of a miss there. I don't think people are going. There to aren't the dogs. any dog. There aren't any. There aren't any greyhound stadiums left, are there? They're really? closing down like Billy, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, so he meets up with Jules again, and it's obvious that they have a history. Um, this whole movie is done entirely through Theo's point of view, isn't it? But you you don't yes. really experience anything that that Theo isn't looking at. It's quite clever in that way. It's got a very well, strong. This is their means of exposition, isn't it? It's a visual means of exposition. Yeah, we've got one little bit of dialogue that's expositional dialogue at the beginning, saying. Oh, and this has changed, and this is the new government kind of thing. But pretty much all of it is explained. Everything that's happening is explained with uh, graffiti on the walls, with government posters, and it's all taken in through a visual field. The yeah. whole backstory and the, the whole background to the entire movie is set up in that way. Very original and very different, I think, to most other movies. It's kind of like diegetic exposition, if that's even a concept. Like... That is a concept, yeah. Uh, and so... He's in the car and they're going quite a long distance, I guess. And he, and Theo sleeps, and so we don't see the car journey. We just see him being like, nudged awake because apparently he's snoring. And there's this girl in the car who's nudging him. This young girl, and there's an a, an older lady called Miriam. She's called Key, isn't she? I think. And, That's right. Yeah. Uh, this is the girl that he's arranged the transit papers for. Apparently, the transit papers he had to get meant that he had to accompany her. So he has to go along with her. Yeah, tenuous, but what the heck. And it's being driven by Luke. What we get... And Jules is in the passenger seat in the front. And now we get one of the classic long shots in this film that make Mm -hmm. the highlights of this film, really. You know, a single shot with no edits or no obvious edits, possibly edited together very subtly. But it's a beautifully shot action sequence. The flaming car rolling down the hill, yeah. yeah. They're driving through this like area with forests on either side. And yeah. yeah, suddenly, as you say, this car on fire comes down the hill 
w- rolling towards the road as if to block them off or possibly even hit them. And then you see a shot through the windscreen of the car that they're in. with, And this is true, isn't it? There's a, like a heads-up display being shown on the car. And it's going yeah. like impact warning, which is a neat feature of uh, a modern car. And Luke slows the car down sort of just in time so they don't get hit. But loads and loads of people are emerging from the forest. Hordes of Mad Maxians, yeah. Coming down to attack them. And Luke puts it in reverse and tries to get out of there. And there's a chase erupting. and To no avail because two of them are on a motorbike. On a motorbike, yeah. One of them pulls a gun out. That was good because it, it, it was filmed as, as though, oh, they've escaped the horde. But yeah. no, then the motorbike suddenly appears. It was really well done, actually. They shoot through the windscreen. It hits Jules in the neck. Yes, in the neck. Um, the motorcycle pulls alongside and Theo opens the door, knocks them off. And they do manage to get away. But they pass... Uh, loads of police now going to the scene of that crime and they try to get away with it. Jules is bleeding out with a, a you know a wound to her neck and Theo is trying to stem the bleeding but not really having much success. A police car is turned around, chases them down and stops them and Theo jumps out of the car immediately and shoots the cops um, and everyone's shocked that he's done this. But he uh, then drives away, and they wind up in this kind of safe house somewhere in the countryside, some kind of farmhouse. And so I, 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 this was kind of like, I thought rather mushy. Well, the, the cinema, cinematographics were great, and the action was great. However, I thought the novel did this better. She creates an idea of a, of a corrupt and dysfunctional Stasi state, yeah, that's very heavily monitored. But like South Africa sort of dispassionately views the crimes of some, uh, but really really knuckles down hard on the crimes of others. And I think what we get here is, in the movies, just like, you know, the police overrun and just arresting everybody. But in the novel, you know, these Clockwork Orange-type hordes of, you know, these they, they're just killing for fun. They're roaming the countryside, and, they're, uh, and they've got like, uh, it's like an urban myth thing. Like, if you flash lights at the car, that's going the opposite way, they'll turn around and kill you. It's like they pick a victim, and they only kill one person out of the car and make everybody else watch it kind of thing. Uh, and then they flame, they torch the car and torch the victim kind of thing. So it's really quite gruesome in the novel, and, and much scarier, I think, than just this kind of, like, random attack that happens in the movie. But also, like, uh, the level of monitoring and that sense that, you know, Big Brother's watching... Uh, People for quite spurious but defined reasons is much better sort of conveyed in the novel. For example, the religious crazies, they're allowed to protest, but people like the five fishes that form a serious threat to the government, uh, they really can't move like they move in the movie. Like they're very heavily monitored. And you don't really get that in the movie. It's just more like everybody's kind of a bit chaotic and everybody's sort of got to watch out for the police or, you know, the security forces. And so, so yeah, but a great, great scene nonetheless. Uh, Julian's, Julian's, Julian's death. Now, in the fish hideout, a couple of things become apparent. There's a discussion about trying to get this girl to this boat called the Tomorrow, where the mm-hmm. human projects, I think, are, in, um, are doing stuff. But Theo's eavesdropping at the same time, isn't he? It's, it is revealed to Theo 
by her stripping off and showing him that Key is actually pregnant. Yeah. The first pregnant woman on the planet in for 20 years. So that's amazing. Well, 18 years, yeah. I suppose she would have to strip off to prove that at some stage, wouldn't she? But in a cow shed? I don't know about that. <laughs> it's some kind of allegorical thing going on. Yeah, there. just talk about ripping off cows' nipples and stuff like that, which I thought was unnecessary, to be honest with you, because it's, I mean, just where did that come from? And then for me, a whole thing is happening now with this film that I don't totally get. There's well, like, he eavesdrops, doesn't he? And he finds out that Luke organised this sabotage. Well, what happens is Patrick shows up with with his cousin or his brother or something. And it's obvious from the motorcycle they arrive on and the injuries that they've got that they were yeah. the guys who shot Julian. Wow. In the ambush. I really wasn't paying attention to that bit. I had to rewind it. I couldn't figure it out. I, w- I couldn't figure it out. But yeah, he's eavesdropping. In any case, he, he overhears Luke admit it, doesn't he? And, and Luke is saying, you know, who they're going to have to kill and stuff. And so what I don't get, though, is what's this all about? This is so Luke can act, act, you know, accede to to power of the five fishes kind of thing. Why is that such a big deal? Why does he want that? Why is why because is... he now knows that Key Key is pregnant? Yeah. And how is that important? I mean, it's important well, for the world. Well, in the novel, that is that is the whole lodestone key to the power accession to power over over the British Dominion kind of thing. Why? Why would he it? who? It's it's like the ring, isn't it? He he who can give fertility will obviously be supported by the entire populace and would sustain a revolt against the government. That's the whole thesis of P.D. James's novel. But it, it, if you're a ragtag bunch of activists in a farmhouse, even if you've got a girl who's pregnant, it doesn't give you the ability to withstand the police state and the military of, that that are going to be set but against it you. Would her argument is it would cause such a surge, such a swell in, in, in public support that a, just a general uprising would occur through the ranks and also through the power brokers underneath the people who hold power would see an opportunity to do deals with the, with the revolutionaries and thereby... She talks some real, real politic in this and I think it's quite credible. It's not in the movie, I admit. Like this, it isn't in the movie. It is, but in the movie, I think they try to express that toward the end. Yeah. In the novel, right? Okay, he's he's the cousin of the dictator of the, of, of Britain. Yeah, right. He has yeah. real, you know, Theo has real power. He holds. He's the kingmaker essentially. And once he's with this girl that's pregnant, uh, he he plays it two or three ways. With yeah, uh, this is a weakness for me. Is the politics, the internecine politics of the activists don't really strike home for me. I don't get it. But it doesn't work, no. I mean. it, it, yeah, it's it doesn't carry enough water for the actual story they're trying to tell. But th- what we're supposed to think is that Luke is yeah trying to make a play to keep the girl with him, whereas the girl wants to get off to this boat, to the, the human project. To the human project. And yeah. She wants Theo to help her get there. So... Theo suddenly now realising that they're in grave danger has to figure out a way to get get them out of there. And it's quite clever what he does, actually. He he goes and gets Key and the, the woman who's a midwife that was accompanying her. He sneaks outside with them. He takes the keys out of one car and disables the Range Rover. Wait, now, wait a minute. This escape, I thought, was maybe the best part in the movie. Oh, it's very good. It was so brilliantly, Absolutely. brilliantly directed. So nail-biting. 
Yeah, we were told earlier on, actually, when they arrived, they, there was a, a clue was given about them having to bump start that Renault that they jump in. But um, they, they, he gets them all in the Renault. It, it, they start. He pushes it, start going, and they go, wow, they start yeah. rolling down the hill. They're trying to bump. And of start course, it. there's two false starts where they you think it started, but it hasn't. Kind of thing, you know. Classic, classic movie making stuff. And all the while, in the background, you're seeing the fishes work out what's going on. They trying to give chase, uh, and they try to get in the cars, but they their cars aren't working either. So you're seeing them coming quite slowly down the hill behind them, but inexorably, while they're trying to desperately... Oh, it's so tense. It's, it's yes, brilliant. It is tense. It's really good. Really good. They manage to get away. They manage to get away. And, of course, Theo goes to the only place he knows that's sort of secret and safe, which is Jasper's hideout. And, you know, Jasper... Well, Jasper's can, getting stoned, isn't he, at this point? He can sort them out. He can help them out, can't he? Um, so there's then a, a very sad sequence where they leave Jasper's place because the fishes have found them. And they escape. Not before Jasper's sorted him out with his security guard. Yeah, That's right. He's given them a contact called Sid. Sid, who pretends to be a fascist pig. I think and he is a fascist pig, isn't he? But he's a fascist pig. Yeah, but he's like, ha ha, I'm about to shoot to death. No, I'm not. I'm just your mate, really. <laughs> but Jasper gets shot by the fishes, don't they? And they watch yeah, him. Yeah, sadly. They meet up with Sid. Sid manages but to. He's had get a long, them. happy life, you imagine. Sid manages to get them into the Bexhill like uh, enclave, the refugee kind of walled city. Yeah, now I thought the action got a bit disparate and a bit too much and a bit over much here. Like, there's a lot of. There's a lot of fighting and a lot of messy fighting and I didn't really know what was going on once they got in the compound. Well, the main thing that happens initially in the in that compound is they meet they're given another contact, weren't they, by Sid and called Marika and she gives them accommodation in which That's T right. finally gives birth. And now Sid realizes he's got bargaining power. Yeah. So there's like And they manage to escape him. But there's like in in the novel, it's not opportunistic bargaining power like cri- this criminal. You know, we just robbed the bank. You're the driver. I've got the gun. I'm going to shoot you and take your 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 split. Do you know what I mean? It's very opportunistic power seeking here. Whereas in the novel, you know, there's strategy and there's tactics involved. It's much more of a chess game. So exactly. Again, it doesn't really sell itself, does it? But we're told that the fishes are trying to break into Bexhill now because obviously they know that Key is here with the. The, the, the baby, possibly. And we also know that the army are... It's turned up, yeah, to quell it all. To quell it. And I think it's also stated that the plan is, and has always been anyway, that if there's any trouble, they're just going to bomb this place and kill everyone in the... So uh, there's an airstrike about to happen. However, you know, baby, mother and baby confront army. Army drop drop their guns in astonishment. Well, this like- is, hang on, though. Because the action sequence you're talking about... This is one of the longest single shots, certainly up until that. Is it? Yeah, it's like eight so minutes. This is Luke versus Theo, basically, yeah? Is that right? Uh, or Fishes uh, versus Theo? Fishes versus Theo, yeah. But I didn't a, find it believable. There's a very... So. It's a, it's an amazing uh, sequence because it's a yeah. dystopian, like, British town looking like, you know, a place... That was in, quite good. A place yeah. in Syria, or now we would say Ukraine, right? Looking like a bombed-out, properly you know, destroyed place with tanks rolling in and insurgents, you know, uh, having a pitch battle in the streets 
And it's an amazing, apparently single, I think there's some cuts in it, but apparently single shot wow. as we follow Theo. Again, it's all from his point of view. As he, you know, runs between dodges, you know, bullets bouncing off the walls, left, right and centre. And there's the fishies guys knocking around and uh, being threatening. And he's uh, trying to help Key and the baby. They're trying to get to a boat. And uh, as you say... The Tomorrow. It's called The Tomorrow. Yeah, but they need a rowing boat. They need a rowing boat to row out to sea to get on The Tomorrow. But the... The culmination of this action sequence is, yeah, in a building and the the kid is revealed. And yeah, as you say, it, ever, no one who's seen a kid for 20 years, you know, is astonished. All the soldiers kind of put their guns down and stuff. And guns down. The airstrike still continues against the fishes. They just decide not to hit the baby. Theo takes a bullet from, from Luke's gun and he's like, I'm mortally wounded. And she's like, I'll call my son Dylan. Well, Kind of thing, which I think was the name of his dead son. Yeah. Kind of, it's supposed to be a sad ending, I think. Yeah, and he he's obviously going to die, or does die, doesn't he, at the end? I think he does die, yeah. yeah. So, well, there we are. We talked last week about Under the Skin being a simple story. Really, yeah. this is quite a simple story, really, isn't it? It's, it is, yeah, yeah. Place with no kids, a, a future with no kids, kid gets born bloke helps this woman escape with kid that's it really with yeah with frankly confusing kind of uh confusing motives, motives and uh, motives and p- potential returns i would say yeah however in the novel to be fair to her okay it's much more chess pieces and that kind of betrayal and power positioning makes a lot more sense i think <laughs> that's interesting well i'm glad i'm very glad you're able to give me this insight into the book because i was really curious what it was like well, it's a real page turner, you know. Whatever you think about personal politics or you know public politics, as I've just realised that she's a Tory, Tory peer, she does write a really good novel. It she has is to a be novelist, said. yeah, no question, yeah. I mean, definitely a good novelist. Uh, as 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 a science fiction novel, I wouldn't really count it as science fiction. The way she works her way out, I say, well, you know, decrepit society, things haven't really changed at all. Apart from the fact it's uh, really dangerous, you know. But, Richard, I, I guess it's coming to scores, isn't it? It is, Paul. It is coming to scores. Do you want to talk about themes? I'm guessing hopes and, hope and faith are in there, but let's not talk about P.D. James's themes for the movie, if that's okay. Stick with the movie. Alfonso Cuaron's uh, dystopian view of 2027, only five years away. I think we could achieve this vision of the future if we, if we just carry on as we're doing now. <laughs> Yeah, if we put effort into really messing things up, we definitely can do. Remember, it's always easy to break something to make than to make something. Granted. What are we what are we scoring here? The the vision of the future. Well, the futurism. Yeah, dystopian half science fiction visions of the future. Uh action definitely, action and special effects because it was quite there was a good fair few minutes of, of fating, wasn't there? And, and some and some nice stuff. And then, of course, the usual acting and plot. Uh, well, let's do acting. I'll do acting straight away. Some good turns here. And mm. Clive Owen is uh, quite engaging as... Uh, I think he's supposed to be a kind of normal... As you say, he's supposed to be an ex-activist, isn't he, in the film? Yes. Yeah. Turned office worker. Um, Julianne Moore is great, but in it very briefly... And Michael Caine, of course. So let's go eight for acting. 
Julia Moore, I thought was really strong. A shame she exited so quickly, unexpectedly, you know. I would say perfunctory and performative. I'm going to give it a seven for acting. Reasonable. Okay. We have to talk about action and special effects. And got to say, this film really carries off the whole look. Like, even for the beginning, the bombing in the coffee shop. In oh, that, Yeah, that was a good bombing, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, it felt very real. And the tinnitus that carries through from his POV was really good, I thought. And then the, yeah. there's all the cars that are not very futuristic, but slightly weird, like the, slightly the weird. Renault that yeah. they drive around, which has no B-pillars, which might have been partly to do with the having to film out of it. I don't know. but <laughs> uh, Action yeah. special effects. I'm going to jump in here, Richard, before you score it, and score it an eight. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely worth an eight. Yeah. It might even be an eye. Good. But, it could be. Uh, yeah. I okay. Back to plot. What do you think about plot? Kind of thin in the film, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of thin. I I don't really get what it's trying to say, um, you know, because, I mean, why are we all infertile? I don't, I don't know. Uh, how do we fix it? Who knows? <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't worry. That's not really dealt with in the, in the novel either. So, And, you know, yes, yeah, sure, police state. Bad. As an Oxfordian, she doesn't go Crick and Watson on us on this one, though. No, I mean, no. I, I liked the the film is a critique of anti-immigrant sentiment, and you know, all the talk about refugees and muddying the water with immigrants and deporting them, and there's so is the novel. Amazing. But like you say, I think it might be wishful thinking <laughs> or in some sort of inverted trickery that's going on. However, in the film, there's that amazing sequence when they go through the immigration detention center stuff, mm-hmm. and they actually they're using that imagery from the um not Guantanamo, the other place Abu oh. Garib. There, there's yes. that seat that's that image of that guy standing on a crate with a black hood, pointed hood over his head, standing with his arms out. That's exactly like the Abu Garib pictures. It's uh, just a direct you know, reference, a direct hit at all. So that's the strongest bit. Anyway, back to plot, Richard, which we failed to score. <laughs> So, yeah, you're right. It's prophetic about some things. It's saying something about others. But the plot line itself is paper thin. So mm. it carries the action, but not much else. I'll give it a seven. Uh, the plot for me held up until... Held up as it was, and it, for what it is, until the last action, which was good, but I felt the action became flimsy because it was just there to hide up holes in the plot. You know, the final mm. the final showdown with Luke uh, and our protagonist, Theo. I felt there was no reason for that other than to fill, fill out the movie because why, you know? Why they needed a happen? finale, right? Yeah. They needed a finale, yeah. And it wasn't, didn't really make sense, did it? So that aside, uh, it was a fairly decent play. It moved along at a fair old pace. It wasn't confusing. It kind of made vague sense. I'm going to score a six. All right. Finally, can we get there? Uh, dystopian feels. Did it, did it build a dystopian atmosphere for you? It, was this the future you envisaged, Richard? It's very accurate. I mean, it's a very down-to-earth real yeah, future, it isn't is, it? it is. It's not Blade Runner in, in, in any respect, is it? They're not going too far away, are they? And um, it's, it's, Well, maybe not far enough, considering yeah. they're using coins and, and, and they don't even have smartphones. So, I mean... They, they missed on that. It's depressing. It's depressingly accurate in many ways. But they got, you know, pandemics in, which they had no... You know, they had... It's 2006 that are talking about this. 
uh, and they got working from home in. <laughs> Those office scenes, very Brazil, as I mentioned, but also, I mean, you know, there's like this desks that have just been wrapped in plastic, presumably because people have died and there's no one to replace them. So what I what I didn't buy was the was the was the lack of technological advancement. I think as society breaks down, we'll still have rich enclaves. I, it's not like we're going to forget all our signs straight away. Does that make sense? For a sci-fi movie, we would have expected a bit more gadgetry. Does that make sense? I'll give it a seven. Yeah, for dystopian feel uh, and the way, as you said, the diegetic diegetic exposition, diegetic exposition. You know the way that they told this. The way they told us just what kind of dystopia was happening without actually saying any words at all, just by graffiti and imagery and panning shots was wonderful. So I thought this was maybe the strongest aspect of the movie was just this general atmosphere of a, of, of a doomed future. Uh, I'm going to score it an 8.5 for this. All right. And so overall, overall. Overall, some definitely less than the parts, unfortunately for me. Uh, I didn't find it that satisfying as a movie. Did feel a bit bitty. Great action sequences, but not enough to redeem something that was based on something that doesn't resemble in any, any way, shape or form. Six. It, it feels a little bit like a sort of TV play um, or an expensive yeah. Channel 4 TV special or something. I mean, it's obviously bigger budget. Darren, than- does it feel like Darren Brown? Like when Darren Brown recreates a zombie apocalypse and, and hypnotizes <laughs> somebody, they wake up. It felt a bit like that to me. So, yeah, it, I think you're right. The, the whole is lesser than the sum of its parts in some ways. And it's got a very weird relationship to its source material that it's undecipherable. Uh- <laughs> Deeply confusing, you know. I'm, I'm just like, just so much that it's just, it's similar, but just completely in opposite directions. Right? I'll give it a so. six overall, I think. Oh, you weren't that pleased with it either. Oh, well. No, I wasn't. I preferred Under the Skin last week. However, can we just say huge, gigantic budget on this one? $75 million, which, you know, 14 years ago is 100, it's, you know, it's 100 or 120 million these days. Big, big budget, really. It's not 10 times uh, better than Under the Skin. It's not, and it did okay in the box office. You know, it, it made it made its production money back, but obviously it didn't make its marketing money back. It made seventy million. I don't know what they spent the money on. It must be really extravagant sets with with real graffiti rather than CGI, mustn't it? I'd, I'd love to know about what CGI was in this. It'd be interesting. But Paul, we're done with. This it would have been cheaper if they'd done a bit more CGI. I think. Let's think about a film for next week. Oh Christ! I've really not thought about that, Richard. How, I've got some suggestions you can come back. How about, remember Gaspar Noe did Climax, the crazy dancing movie? I like that movie, yeah. How about Enter the Void, which is another Gaspar Noe movie? Am I emotionally, do I have the emotional bandwidth to deal with this? I think I do. Any other options? A film that people have suggested, I think, on streaming services called Dave Makes a Maze, which looks quirky and charming. I'm going to plump. Is that what he's saying? I'm going to plump the enter. Enter the void. The void. All right. Well, I hope we can get it on some streaming service or another. And I hope I can edit all this. Yeah. All right. Until the next week, then. Hopefully, when we enter the void, or not, depending. Ciao for now. Until the next time. Goodbye. Bye. Hold up. Wait a minute. We've made a mistake for the second time. We've chosen a film which we have no way of 
easily watching. So, we're going to change the film now. This is me interrupting after the facts. And instead, we're going to watch Choose or Die on Netflix. That's the Netflix movie, fairly newly released, Choose or Die. That's next week's movie. Until then, goodbye. Thank you.